So today on the podcast, we have Jules Porter, a former Marine veteran, a degrees in aeronautics. I don't don't know if I'm saying that right. Aeronautics? Yep, aeronautics. Aeronautics and theology, a lawyer, and now a (laughs) video game creator at Sarah Seven Studios, which is her very own video game company headquartered here in Minnesota. Jules, wow. What is there anything you don't do? I mean, what am I supposed to say after that introduction? (laughs) (laughs) Well, after that introduction, I just want you to say, (laughs) share with the audience what's what's one thing that most people don't know about you? Man, that don't know about me. Um, I love going to the orchestra, the Minnesota Orchestra. I've been able to meet a lot of the musicians there. Um, and I actually play a lot of instruments, even though I don't really play that often as an adult. Um, and I tried learning how to play the violin. I got to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, and that's as far <laughs> as far as I've gotten. <laughs> and how long so, have you been going to uh, orchestras? What what drew you to that? Um, so I also have an MBA. And while I was in the MBA program, I had to do a project. And the project was based on the Minnesota Orchestra um, and the handling of uh one of the circumstances that they had that almost uh, led to the end of the Minnesota orchestra and how they were able to bounce back. Mm-hmm. So in the midst of that project, I, I realized they had $12 tickets um, for students. And I also realized they had a student ambassador program. So I just kind of started going for $12 a seat and just kept, kept doing that. And it was a good way to just relax because it was the midst of the social justice crisis. So we already had the death of Jamar Clark. And so at that time it was the death of, or the killing of Philando Castile. Mm-hmm. And so going to the orchestra was just a really great way to relax, to, you know, the music is wordless, so I could put all of my emotions into it, all of my feelings and thoughts, um, and just let it be carried. And it just felt really good. So mm, That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So a- after going to that orchestra and, you know, you're, you're going through all these things, you're listening to the music, you're relaxing, what yeah. made you keep going? Was it just something you turned into, you know what, I want to continue having this in my life? Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it. Big shout out to uh, Sarah Hicks and to Sam. Sarah is one of the few uh, women con- uh, conductors of a major orchestra, and she's under the age of 40. She's amazing. And her and Sam did this program called Inside the Classics that later became Sam and Sarah, where they actually like spend the first half before intermission mm-hmm. um, breaking down the piece and the music that they're going to play, telling us about the composer, what drove the composer to write this music, some of the jokes they hid in the music. And then the second half was like playing the piece. And so I was like, ah, I got that. Oh, that's where he was sent, you know, and I was able to figure things out. So they were amazing. But one of the things that really kept me going there is inviting my friends to come because so many of the people in my life, never really got a chance to go to the orchestra or, or wasn't on their radar. So when I invited them, they, uh, they, they always pretty much said yes. And they would show up and we would show up about an hour early. We would just catch up on life, going to the orchestra, have fun over intermission, you know? So it was a, it was just a good time to catch up with people in my life that I hadn't seen in a while. Awesome. Awesome. And, and Jules, you, you are a Minnesota native, correct? I am born and raised. Born and raised. So what made you yeah. stay in Minnesota? Oh, I didn't. When I uh, when I turned 18, I was out. <laughs> I went to uh, I, so my parents for high school, they moved us to Egan, Minnesota from South Minneapolis. And so I went to this all white high school um, and I was just really frustrated there. 
um, for many different reasons. And I just vowed to go to an HBCU, the furthest one away from Minnesota. So I went to FAMU. Uh, so I am a Rattler hey, down in Tallahassee, FAMU. Florida. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Florida. And then I joined the Marine Corps. And then I, uh, when I got out the Marine Corps, I worked a little bit in Texas. Then I worked a little bit in Atlanta. Um, and then I came to Minnesota for law school. So you went from moving out at 18 to go to FAMU. Shout out to all my Florida people. Unite, unite. Yeah. <laughs> to Texas and then Atlanta and then the military. No, so I went to the military right after uh, FAM, right after FAMU, joined the Marine Corps, did my four years. Um, and I, I was overseas pretty much the entire four years, except for when I got to train and, you know, boot camp and then in Quantico and places like that. And then when I got out, I ended up in Texas. Hated every minute of being in Texas. No, no disrespect to the Texas people. I know they <laughs> love their state so much. It was miserable for me. I hated the heats. I just, I didn't, you know, it just wasn't my vibe. Um, but I did like Atlanta a lot better. You know, te Texas yeah. is definitely not for everybody. It's definitely not no. for everybody. <laughs> so walk, walk me through your time in the military overseas. So how was that like as a young woman fresh out of college being overseas away from everything you know, and now you're in the Marines, one of the toughest branches of it, <laughs> out, out of everything, the Marine Corps. What drew you to the Marine Corps? Yeah, I mean, I definitely had to earn every single thing that I had in the Marine Corps. It was only 5% uh, female when I went in, and now it's only 8.3%, so it hasn't gotten much better. But I had two cousins that I really looked up to that joined the Marine Corps um, that really talked me into it because I was in Air Force ROTC when I was in college. So I was about to get a nice little cushy job, you know, in the Air Force, same pay for, for much less physical demands. Um, but I really did like the, the idea of, of earning things and just working hard. And then just what the Marine Corps represented and the respect that it commanded. Um, but I did have to give it my very best and my all. And it worked okay. I mean, when I went to, uh, I went in as an engineer. And so I was the honor graduate of the engineer school. So what that means is I was the only female there and I got the highest GPA. I beat all the guys and everything. And that was from hard work. Yeah. <laughs> it was from yeah. a lot of hard work and discipline. Um, and I just carried that mindset on. And I became a sergeant about two years, um, which is almost unheard of. But wow. I worked really hard when I was in. Yeah. So you, you joined the Marine Corps. First of all, thank you for your service. Let me start there. Thank you for your service. Uh, my sister-in-law, <laughs> she's actually part of the Air Force nice. um, as well. So I definitely well, don't don't tell her what I said about actually, no, you, you can tell her what I said about the cushy job, not having to work as hard as everybody else. In the oh, Force. don't don't she'll, worry. She'll we laugh. we get laugh. her crap all the time. <laughs> Every time she says she's going, uh, oh, yeah, I'm going down to the cities, you know, for the weekend. Well, like, all right, enjoy your, your five star hotel, not doing anything. She's like, we work right. really hard. We're like, ah, but you really do you really? <laughs> <laughs> so she she'll get a kick out of that. Oh, <laughs> so Jules, you you joined the Marine Corps. There's five percent female in there. Did you know that going into it? I knew it was pretty low. I just didn't realize how low it was. But I do appreciate the way they handle things, like boot camp. Um, you know, they have the guys train in the, their own battalions, and they had fourth battalion in Paris Island for the women. Um, but I did really enjoy that because that was really the only time I got a chance to work with women Marines. <laughs> so, and, and so I really appreciate the connections I was able to form at the very beginning, starting off the career. But no, I didn't realize it was that abysmal of a statistic wow. until I got in there. Wow. Yeah. yeah. 
And as you guys can see, we're only 10 minutes into this podcast, and the gems that are being dropped right now are mind-boggling. And we haven't even got <laughs> to all the other great stuff that Jules has done so far in her life. And I'm sure you're going to top what you've already done in the next 20 years as well. So, Jules, I hope so. That's the plan. Oh, no, I know so. I know so. <laughs> I know so for a fact. So t- tell me more about what aeronautics is. Well, when I was a kid, uh, Dr. Mae Jameson, I believe it was 1993, she was the first black woman in outer space. And I was so, so super inspired by that because I was like, what? We can go to outer space. That's awesome. And so ever since then, I wanted to go to outer space. I wanted to be an astronaut. It's actually in my will that when I die, I want my body to be shot up to outer space. Just let (laughs) me just drift. So. Yeah, so I wanted uh, to become an astronaut. And so one of my goals was uh, to do it kind of through the military end um, to finish my aeronautics degree, um, to probably get a degree in astrophysics or astrobiology, because that was kind of the emerging field at the time. And it still is emerging. Um, And then work for NASA. That's what I wanted to do. Um, But I ended up getting out after four years. But aeronautics is basically, you know, the design of planes and flight and things of that nature. So it was kind of my first step towards becoming an astronaut. So if, if that was your goal for so long, what, what made you leave the force and leave that dream behind? I realized that it was nearly impossible to finish up um, the degrees while I was in. I had to work so much. I mean, I went in as an engineer. Um, then I was in the top 10% of the Marine Corps. So I got a chance to guard embassies. Mm-hmm. And we would have all these drills, all these things that we needed to do. And even when I would tell you know, the guys, because like I said, I was the only woman around. Hey, I have this huge test on Thursday at this time. I need to be at the computer. I need to not be bothered. You know what they would do? Bother they you. would call a react drill. So then I would have to respond to this thing for training right in the middle of my exam. So I just kind of got sick of stuff like that. Oh, and man. I realized that I really needed to um, sit down and then I could always finish the degree and come back. But I also thought about go into one of the military academies. Um, but in the end, I just decided to get out. It was tough, you know, not having right many other women or many other black women. And then I was overseas pretty much the whole time. So I felt very isolated there mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. um, especially like being in Poland because there are no other black people in Poland, really. Oh, it wow. scared me a lot, like the, the Polish people, because they weren't used to seeing black women. So it was just a little different environment. So I did kind of just want to be back in the U.S. for a while. So you mentioned Poland. Was that the only place you were stationed overseas? No, I was in Japan, um, Okinawa, Japan. Uh, I was in Asuncion, Paraguay, um, and kind of all over South America, um, and then Warsaw, Poland, and then kind of all over. So the way it works is you get a main duty station, but if there's an embassy you were there in need of a Marine, you can be sent over there to help out. Wow. So you not now yeah. I ha- I have to hear. Give me give me what's your best story while being overseas. Oh, man. So, some of the stuff is classified. I don't even know. Yeah, anyway. But, um, but it was just interesting. But the protests overseas were a lot different than what we experienced. So, like, the, they were throwing, like, flowers at us mm. and stuff. Like, not, no big deal, you know. So we just watch. We also had a different mindset, which is how I know that some of the killings that are going on right now in America, the police just need better training. Because mm. they were mm-hmm. able to take Marines who were trained. Because we have a, a three-month boot camp. And then we have um, a one month of Marine combat training after that. And then you go to your MOS school where you learn your job. 
So they're able to take Marines who are kind of, I guess, trained killers in many ways, and they were able to retrain them or retrain us for the embassy program to where our main priority isn't to shoot or to kill or to do any of these things, but it's just to lo locate, isolate, and contain, which is to find people and just de-escalate the situation, keep them there um, until other people come in and, and uh, arrest them. Mm. And so if they can retrain Marines like that, I'm pretty sure the police can be retrained in a way so that they're actually protecting people and not thinking to shoot or draw their weapons at first. Because everything that we did when we guard the embassies is an international incident if it goes wrong. And so we really have to, you know, be on our guard and make sure we're doing things the right way. Right. There's so a, if you can trust 20-year-old kids to do that, right, then why can't the cops get this together? So that that's, you know, one of my things. <laughs> wow. Wow, that was that was heavy. I, I definitely uh definitely agree with that one one hundred percent. Um yeah. you know, very unfortunate, but it's a it's an interesting perspective to hear you talking about how, you know, Marines, like you said, trained to kill twenty year olds overseas, completely foreign land, probably don't even understand a word that people are saying, but they look angry, but still having the composure mm -hmm. not to not to harm anybody. So that that's a huge testament exactly. to the training and, and the willpower. Exactly. Yep. And the discipline. But a lot of it's training. I mean, we trained a lot. I had a commanding officer who always said Marines don't rise to the occasion. They default to their level of training. Mm. And I think that's very true. Wow. Marines yeah. don't rise to the occasion that default to their level of training. Yeah. And I think that's what many people do when they're in just crazy situations is they go down to their defaults. And whatever that default is, you know, whatever they're kind of trained up to do, that's what they do. So we saw with uh, Flynn, I don't mean to keep dropping heavy topics, but these situations really formed who I am as an adult. But when we all saw the video of Philando Castile and we see Officer Yanez freaking out, when I first watched that video, I thought that was Philando like in his death cries. Yeah. I didn't even realize until I watched it again that that was the officer freaking out, waving his gun, you know, still at the mother and child in the in the um passenger component of the car wow i was just like what is this is this is crazy and that shows that his level of training his default was just unacceptable mm. you know anyway and and who who do you who do you think that falls on does that fall on the department or does that fall on the officer to reach out or how, how what's your viewpoint on all of that i mean it's it's all of the above it's the training, the way the training that it's carried out. It's on the individual officer to make sure they're ready and of the right mind, you know, before they go out there, you know, to have their cultural competency, you know, in the right way. Because, I mean, no matter how hard you train somebody, you know, their mindset, their perspective. I always say that, like, racism is a rot that starts in your heart. Mm. And it's something that, like, no matter how many laws you train, change or how many policies you change, it can't affect that rot that's, that grows in there. That that comes from you have to build empathy, compassion, getting to know other people, seeing them as human beings. Um, and so I think it was a, a mix of not having the correct training and also just not seeing Black people as being people of worthy of value, respect, humanity, and dignity. Mm -hmm. Like, you remember um, the, the officer who killed Mike Brown said that he looked like a demon before he shot him. Right, right. How does this young teenage boy look like a demon? And that just shows how dehumanized we are in the minds of many police officers. And that's just so unfortunate. So there needs to be something with the hiring process, the training, um, the, psych, the psych screenings, everything. And it needs to be a different culture, right? Because we have here George Floyd, 
Um, and even the new officer on the scene said he wanted to speak up and say something. He said he did, but he was told not to worry about it. Um, but then he just kind of, you know, he didn't really push too hard. And that says there's something wrong with the culture. You should be able to speak up and say this is wrong and be heard and listened to or be enabled to take actions to stop the wrong thing that's going on, no matter how new you are. And that's that's something that um, that I, I, I have a heavy heart on as well is being able to speak up when you feel something is wrong. And I yeah. mean, you know, we've we've both probably had a lot of those experiences growing up, you know, people of color not feeling as if you could speak up when you do something may happen or just having mm-hmm. a constant fear of, of, you know, retaliation. Yes. Yes. Um, so my I want to transition a little bit here to ask you a question. So you grew up, you know, Minnesota, Minnesota. Nice. Everybody's, you know, gives you a little <laughs> smile. I, I hate it. Uh, going to, you know, predominantly white school in Egan to then yeah. going into the military with where you're five percent. Uh, women in the military in the marines which is one of the toughest ones as, as well being overseas experiencing all of what you just talked about how did your upbringing prepare you for all of that <laughs> well i would say it actually prepared me very well so my mother um is an administrator she was a teacher when i was growing up and then she became a principal of an alternative high school and she retired just a few years ago with 30 years in as a principal at this alternative high school in Burnsville. Congratulations. Um, I know she's all happy in retirement. But one thing that her and my father did when we were younger, we meaning me and my two little brothers, is we had black history homework. So we had our homework from school and then we had black history homework. And I think learning about all these great people in history really prepared me because I got to see the things that they had to face and the things that I face are nothing in comparison to the things that our ancestors had to endure and deal with and just reading their stories and seeing how they endured and how they dealt with it or dealt with it um, was really important I think in my formation as well you know especially uh, I always go back to the Dr. King quote which is just keep moving forward you know no matter what happens you have to keep moving forward you have to keep making the world a better place Mm. but it also helped me realize that you know when I was little, the only superhero that I knew that was a black woman was Storm. Besides that, all my superheroes were people in real life, you know, like Bessie Coleman, Alice Walker, um, Madam C.J. Walker, Oprah, Shirley Chisholm, Barbara Jordan, Dr. Mae Jameson, you know, all these great black women. Oh, we should say uh, Judge Pam Alexander, the first black female judge in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they, they all inspired me. So you you named you named a lot of um a lot of female uh inspirations just now. Did you seek mm-hmm. female idols or was it something that was just drawn to you? I didn't even need to because I really looked up to my grandparents, like my grandmothers and my godmother. They taught me so much. Like when I was a little kid, my best friend was this uh elder at the church named Mother McKinney. I, you know, I thought she was just my best friend. I was so sad when she <laughs> passed away because she was in her 80s when I was born, I think. So, mm. um, but no, I've always just had the pleasure of being around very wise, you know, women uh, who just kind of instinctively were in my life and took me under their wing. And I was an avid reader as a kid. And so what I loved about going to my godmother's house is she always had encyclopedias. So she would just let me read whatever it is I wanted to read. Um, when I was in elementary school, I read nearly all the books in the school library. Oh, wow. So I was always looking for more books to read. 
Yeah. And so, you know, they let me read books and then my grandmother would debrief the book with me. So I'd have to talk to her about what happened in the book, what I learned. Um, so my, yeah, so my upbringing was all about reading, education, black history, just regular books and yeah. To hear that, you know, you were able to do that growing up and that you read all those books. I, I'm just over here smiling. I wish you could see my face. I'm just smiling right now, <laughs> ear to ear like, yeah, she, yeah. There, mama, there goes that woman right there. She's killing the game. She's killing the game. Yeah, I so appreciate our elders who took the time to kind of instill that in us, you know, and be there for us. So with, with all that reading, 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 is that what kind of helped you decide to become a lawyer? How did you even get to the point of <laughs> outer space? First, you want to go to outer space, partner with Elon Musk. Then you go to the yeah. Marines. And then you become a lawyer. I, I mean, those are all different spectrums. How did you get to that? I mean, Martin, we got to live our best life. You know, <laughs> if you got dreams, you got to chase after all of them. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. No, I, there's actually a term and I forget what it is. There's a term for people that can just like learn things and excel at it pretty quickly. I don't know. It starts with a P. I can't remember what it is. But um. No, but we really made me want to become a lawyer. Uh, my grandmother, um, my mother's mother, or my father's mother, always wanted me to be a lawyer. She said I was a great arguer. I always wanted to stand up for the little guy. If uh, I was wrong or somebody told me I was wrong, I would go and read a bunch of books and then come back to them with a bunch of facts about how I was right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was one of those kids. Uh, but also, uh, it was really in 2012, it was the death of my grandmother and Trayvon Martin that really pushed me to just move forward um, and to go to law school. Mm. You know, I felt very powerless because I was just like, I don't really know what to do. My grandmother was the person who always prayed for me. And so it was almost like this bubble of protection around me just felt like it was gone when she passed. Um, and then with Trayvon Martin, uh, his killing, I have a younger brother who looks very similar to Trayvon Martin who likes to wear hoodies, but was a Yale graduate. And nobody's gonna stop and ask him, hey, are you a Yale graduate before they act on their racism? Um, and whatever their bias is, if they wanted to harm him. And so I just was like, how am I supposed to protect folks? Um, and there was a, there's a professor named Dr. Atika Tyner here in Minnesota at the University of St. Thomas. Mm -hmm. um, and she said that the law is the language of power. So I watched her TED talk and some of her interviews. And that's what really made me decide to come up to St. Thomas um, and go to law school here in Minnesota. And she became one of my mentors, which I'm very happy about because now she's she's right the law is a language of power but kind of like what i said before no matter how many laws you change right that allows you to hold people accountable but racism is that rot that's inside the heart and so you have to get that a different way which is where my video game company came about and oh man i i really hope everyone is listening to what jules is saying right now because this information can change lives this this is a type of this is a type of stuff that you have to pay people to hear and you're getting it for free. So if you miss <laughs> something, go ahead and rewind and listen to it again. Pull the car over if you're driving and just take it in. Close your eyes and just take it in. Take a deep breath. Cause that those were some powerful firebombs just then. And it's it's funny how your life kind of changed during Trayvon Martin's death. Because I remember I remember that day. I was mm -hmm. actually 18 years old. My birthday was a couple wow. months before December, and he was 17 at the time of his death. And I was a senior in high school, 
2012, senior in high school in Orlando, Florida. And just like your, 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 you said, was it your cousin or your uncle that likes to wear that? That looks like Trayvon? Yeah. Oh, that's my younger brother. Younger brother. So mm-hmm. I too, I loved wearing hoodies, even in Florida. I liked wearing the hoodie <laughs> halfway on my head, you know, because I have to see who's around me. And right. I like snacks. So I'd always, you know, sneak chips or candy in my pockets, you know, going into my room or, you know, just whenever I leave the store. So when I heard about what happened, the first month afterwards, I was still kind of shocked. I didn't really know how to make sense of it. And mm-hmm. months after that, into the summer, I actually went back to Africa with my mom, my sister, uh, that summer for three months. And seeing how they were living, seeing how grateful they were for life, and just the struggle that they were going through, I think that's when it really erupted in me, the anger of his death. And just how myself included how we just take a lot of things for granted here in america so that that really took me down a whole nother path of my life so it's it's just it's just interesting to hear how that shaped you as well yeah i mean i think with trayvon martin so many people saw themselves their brothers their you know nephews their sons Mm -hmm. you know in him and in what happened because he was really just going about a normal part of his day right it was basically being stalked by this guy right yeah so, so so let's go ahead and talk about your video game. The game I have still yet to play. We'll we'll have a conversation <laughs> about that in a minute. But how All right. <laughs> how did you end up creating the ultimate elder battle royale? Talk about that. Oh yeah. Cause it's just so hilarious and just ridiculous and over the top that it's just so fun. You know, I wanted to come out, I wanted my first game to be something that united people. Um, I think seeing elders do ridiculous things is very funny. Seeing an old person roundhouse kick somebody to the moon or beat somebody down with a weaponized walker. It's just really funny. (laughs) So the game is basically about superheroes um, who are now in their 70s and 80s. You know, they're living in retirement homes. They're still fighting crime. Um, And in my game, the superpowers aren't necessarily passed down to their kids. Mm. So this is it. These These are our aging our aging supers and just what that's about. Um, it's just kind of funny, but I also wanted it to be very special and to have an introduction to diversity, right? Because there aren't that many video games that feature Black people as heroes. Only 3% in the past 50 years have a Black playable character. Mm. And even with that, they're not always like heroes. They're gangsters, mobsters, anti-heroes. They always have some level of moral deficiency right. and not just the pure good guys. Right. Yeah, so like... So in my game, there's heroes from all over the world, all different shades. Um, Half the roster are women heroes, which is also very rare. Um, But it's a funny way to put some diversity in there and teach people about people of color, where we, you know, BIPOC folks and what we do. And so I wanted each character to be authentic to that culture that they're from. So one of my characters, um, he's clearly from Egypt. Another one is from Mississippi. There aren't that many superheroes from Mississippi. (laughs) There's not a lot of people from Mississippi that we don't even (laughs) know. Yeah, there's Rogue from X-Men, but, you know, so anyway, so one of my characters, Miss Billy, she's a black female. She's a speed racer, speedster, and she's from Mississippi called the Mississippi Supersonic. And so I kind of designed her to be um, basically to fit in at my family reunion. She looks like a lot of my family members. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to do with every character. I want people from that culture, that region to see themselves in this character and the characters to be authentic. So that way, people outside of our communities, when they play the character, yeah, it's funny, but the little pieces of storyline that I put in there, 
you know, is actually teaching them a little something without them even realizing it. So go go ahead and tell the audience the voices of these characters. I, for me, that's my favorite part. Yeah. Um, and so even though COVID-19 has made it a bit more difficult, I'm still very much uh, committed. And so the whole goal is to have my voice actors um, from local nursing homes, retirement homes uh, from around Minnesota. But now that everything's remotely, it can be even farther. So I have a great aunt in Mississippi who's going to be one of the voice actors. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, they're just, yeah. So, so the don't expect the voice acting to be top notch, but it will be... <laughs> authentic it will be for a good cause because these voice actors they'll, they'll get paid so these old folks in the retirement homes and then the goal too is to have a drive so once the new consoles come out if people want to donate their old ones we'll give them to nursing homes mm. so video games are so great um, for helping restore cognitive functions or just helping prolong the cognitive functions that are there um, and it's a great way to socialize as well so we want to get elders gaming or give them the opportunity to. Well, I'm 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 excited for the game, and I honestly think that having them be regular, you know, super agers in the nursing homes is going to make it that much better. Yeah. Because when they do stumble, we know they're actually really yeah. old. So, <laughs> so like, all right. I mean, hey, they are super agers. You know, that, that, that should be a thing. And what, while you were talking, yeah. my wheels were spinning, and I'm listening to you okay. talk about how they're superheroes most of them are female most of them look like you most of them well half are female yeah well half so that i mean that's a pretty big portion and uh how they're from all over the world and they're heroes and i kept hearing the Mm -hmm. word heroes so it takes me back to your grandma you know your your friend from church who who sadly passed early your 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 duty in the marines as now you're becoming a life hero to many other people Oh man! So it just it just makes me think, and it makes me. It's something that I always tell my students as well. Your life story, you you don't know, and sometimes you don't understand until someone else shows it to you. Of how everything you do ultimately comes back full fold later on in life, and you creating this game. All I see is one big old circle, just one big circle, coming back in full 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 circle. Uh, and it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful to hear. And that's so awesome. I didn't even think of it that way. But you're what you're saying is uh is so true that these influences in my life are manifesting themselves in this game. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Yeah, I, I'm here to help. I'm here to help. So, Jules, you know, we talked about a lot of good things. You know, a lot of great things that happen in your life. I want to I want to flip the switch a little bit here. I want to know okay. your greatest disappointment your hurt, your pain, what well, in your personal life and in your professional life? When were those moments where you just didn't want to get out of bed, where you're in just so much emotional pain, where you were like, I'm, I'm done. And what got you out <laughs> of that moment? What made you get up? What made you keep taking that step forward? Well, I'll just say more generally, one of the most disappointing things that I experience is when I tell people what I do, right, that I'm making this video game. And they basically just like look at me in disbelief mm. or they start saying things in disbelief or they start saying discouraging things. Like, like what? Like right? what? Um, are you sure you can handle this? Are you up to it? Um, that's that's going to take a lot out of you. Um, uh, do you need to hire a coder? They, they don't think that I can code. Mm. Do you need to? Um, are you just going to are you just going to hire other people to do this for you? Um, 
because can you really do this on your own? And it's not that I'm doing this on my own, but they're kind of, everybody questions my STEM abilities. Mm. Everybody questions, you know, my abilities in tech. Um, and that's been extremely frustrating, but it's not just there. At every step of life, people have doubted and tried to um, discourage me from doing it, whether it was going to law school. I remember I had a boss at the time who straight up told me, you will not be successful in law school. Nobody will hire you as a oh, lawyer. Wow. You're not a shark. You're a dove. Oh, wow. Right. So it's like every step when I want to move to this new phase of life, you know, I have somebody trying to crap all over me um, and what I'm doing. And so just shaking those people off, you know, like, you know, shaking those haters off, keep moving forward, not letting them discourage you, you know, being able to really believe in yourself. Um, and that sometimes takes a lot of putting thought into your vision, fleshing it out, writing out your plan, putting down your milestones so that when people do start being discouraging towards you, that you're like, you can believe in this plan that you wrote. You can believe in the mentors that you have, the connections that you made, or even if you don't have mentors at this point, you can just believe in this plan that you put together because you've researched it. You know what to do. You know where you are at this phase of the plan. And you can just basically shut them down. There was one person in particular, I went to this event and me and her were the only two BIPOC folks in the room. Um, and so she started talking to me. And when I told her that, yes, um, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer, but I'm also working on this video game company. She started just going in, giving me all these questions about what coding is and this or that. And as I was answering her questions, I realized she had no idea what, how to code. She had no idea about computers, but yet she didn't believe anything I was saying to her. And that was just really disappointing for me. And so just having to deal with people like that, there was this uh, one black guy, uh, he was um, kind of administering a, uh, like a session, some curriculum that I attended, some kind of a program. Okay. And, he and he straight looked at me and he was just like, I don't think any black women are in STEM. I was like, what? I mean, there's so many of us. I mean, even though there's not enough of us, there's still a lot of us. And just to kind of just blurt that out. Um, so I think there's just a lot of stereotypes um, and a lot of stigma around black people in the video game industry in general. I mean, we're only 3% of the workers in the industry, the coder, and less than 1% of the coders in the industry, um, and black women even less. Um, women programmers or women coders in the industry is only 5%. Wow. Um, only 25% of the workers in the video game industry are coders. But just because the stats are so abysmal, you know, you don't have to be so rude and disrespectful. Come on, right. folks. Yeah, so you just have to be strong. Just anybody listening to this where people have been crapping on your dreams, put your plan together, stay strong. Don't let folks discourage you. Keep moving forward. And and who who helped you keep moving forward? Who gave you those words of wisdom that you needed? I mean, honestly, one place that I always go to recharge is uh, the University of St. Thomas. You know, I've made so many, like, I have so many mentors there, Um that that's a real that's that's a place where I always go if I really need some encouragement. I call up some of my old professors or I hit them up on Facebook um, and just kind of chat with them. But of course, you know, family always. My family is always a big encourager and supporter in what I do. So I, I can't. I definitely would have to give them a shout out. But beyond, but beyond kind of that network, my mentors and my family, um, even even some of my friends were a bit discouraging. You know, they're. So just being able to weed those friends out for a while right. <laughs> and focusing on the friends who are encouraging you, I think is also very important. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the friends and the family portion of encouragement and discouragement, because there's a lot of people, yeah. um, you know, who are going to be listening to this, who they may have a dream, you know, definitely now with COVID, 
people are losing their jobs. So you have to be innovative mm-hmm. or you just have to lay there and wait for it to be over, which to me is, is death. Um, it's a kiss of death. But for those who do want to try something new and friends and family are saying, no, don't, you know, don't do it. You don't know how to code, like what happened to you. You know, you're, you're a woman, you can't do this. Or you're a person of color, you can't do that. Or you're young, you know, take your time, be easy, just be, play it safe. Right. For those who aren't, may not be as strong as you, for those who didn't go to the Marines, who didn't travel the world, for those who live in a small town and feel like they're stuck, what is something that they can take away right now and apply to their life and help them? I mean, I would say the people who make the history books aren't the people who play it safe. You know, they're the people who took a risk and went out there. Um, but also, you just have to be smart about it, right? You still, so still have some, still do something that brings in some income, right? You still have bills to pay. You still need to be an adult. But schedule time into your day to also work on your dream. And the more you have things mapped out and planned out, the more confident and comfortable you're going to be going towards that dream. And as you're able to put more steps together and you have a lot of things checked off, you'll get to a point where you'll be able to do that thing that you brings you income like less and less and be able to move more and more towards your dream because now that's your source of income. But there's also a lot of really great programs. So the Finnovation Fellowship is a great program that takes entrepreneurs and gives them nine months and they pay basically, they give you a stipend for your living wages and you're able to focus fully on your company. And there's programs like that you know, that will allow you to financially have time away without, you know, um, being at risk of not being able to pay. Right. Bills. So I'm going to look mm-hmm. into that program. Yeah, it's uh, sponsored by the Bush Foundation, um, who also have a Bush Fellowship and Finnegan's Brewery. Um, so Finnegan's gives 100 percent of their profits to charity. So the Finnovation Lab is actually on the fourth floor of the brewery. Um, and that's where you basically meet and do everything. But it's a really great program because it gives you mentorship and curriculum. But there's other programs also that are like that. So, you know, when you get to the point where you have your business plan together and you're ready to move forward, you just do your research and find programs such as this that will really help you and give you that push. And always find a mentor, somebody who believes in you. Um, and also just be prepared for you might have some friends who come to resent you, unfortunately. Because you're chasing your dream, you're going after something, and they wish maybe that they could do the same or something like that. You never know why a person truly resents you. And so just be ready for the change um, in some people that you might receive. Well, guys, I, guys, gals and, and, and guys, I hope, I hope you heard what Jules just said. I hope you heard what she just said because that was beautiful. If I had a shot glass right now, I'll take a shot, <laughs> but I don't. <laughs> So, Jules, I, I want to know, I have another question for you. I, I want to know, okay. what is something that your video game and your time as a lawyer, your time in the Marines, what is it, uh, what is one thing that it, how it impacted your audience or those around you that you never expected? I never expected. See, I, I plan things out. So a lot of things that are happening are things that I that I did expect. Um, I don't know. That's a tough question. I'm not too sure. I will say one thing that, that I think is just awesome is that my company is all about putting more positive heroes out there um, that are BIPOC folks. 
and making heroes so that every kid can see themselves as a hero in the games that they play. And so I really like how that's resonated with people. Mm. And I would actually say when I first started, I thought I would have to be extremely covert with that message, Mm -hmm. Um, like basically hide it because the gamer culture is kind of like Star Wars fans where sometimes they just get just really upset. Like remember when there was uh, when Finn, the black star trooper, Star Wars fans went crazy. Like what? There's no black stormtroopers did it you know and it's just like come on guys um so sometimes gamers can also be the same way when you mention women when you mention diversity um they can have kind of a backlash um instinct but what i've been finding is that they're actually embracing it more than i thought and my marketing team because i'm working with the marketing team called brio they're actually pushing me to talk more and more about diversity and how powerful representation is mm. um yeah and even um there was one interview where i went in, in depth about the doll experiment from the 1940s that they repeated in the early 2000s when they gave little black girls dolls ranging from white dolls to black to really dark skin dolls and they would ask the girls which doll is the pretty doll and they would point to the white doll mm. which doll is the ugly doll they would point to the black doll which doll is the smart doll point to the white doll, which doll is the ugly doll, point to the black doll. And that just showed that little girls, little black girls, especially as early as age four and five have been told things in society that they're ugly and that they're dumb. Wow. And that it's the same thing in the 2000s as it was in the 1940s, that we haven't done much to fix that. Wow. Um, and it, a lot of it comes through media. And so I've just been embracing that message more, sharing those things more. Um, and that's, I think, has been really powerful and maybe unexpected because I expected to have to be covert and not really talk about it at all in order to get people to be interested in my games and buy the games. And do you ever feel the pressure? Uh, well, obviously, your marketing team is, you know, trying to push you to do it. But do you ever feel internal pressure to speak out more about it? Or is it something that you just want to keep inside? I'm always in these spaces where I'm kind of the only black person around. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> I'm the only black woman around or woman around. Um, and so I always, I always have this internal pressure to be quiet, actually, because mm-hmm. I speak up a lot, right? And what I realized when I started going to law school is that people are very different in the professional culture than in the culture that I grew up in. You know, the culture I grew up in, people will tell you right away if they don't like you or if they like you, you don't have to guess. You don't have to figure it out. You know exactly <laughs> if this person likes you or doesn't like you. Right. But in the professional world, you don't really know. You just have to look at little things and you never know how people are so harshly judging you by everything you say, by everything you do. Um, and so that started getting to me a lot. You know, I didn't want to. I, I walked. Uh, there were a group of people that were talking after a class one day and I overheard them calling me an angry black woman. And that really, that really affected me. The thing that we were talking about was the Dred Scott case. Um, and some people in my class, when they were called on, they said if they were a judge back in that day, they would have returned the slave to the slave master because it was the law. <laughs> and that really, really bothered me. So I, you know, the professor didn't call on me because there's only two black people in the class at this time. Um, but he did finally call on me at the end of the discussion. And I said that, I, the, the, I paraphrased the quote, um, all it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. Ooh. And apparently that was enough to get, have me called an angry black woman. I didn't like that. And so I had to realize that I have to be really intentional with what I say, when I say it, 
and how I say it, um, the wording needs to be very particular. Um, my tone needs to be a certain way, right? For it to be receptive to this audience. Um, and I just really started critiquing everything I said a lot more. And so it feels good to kind of have that opened up a bit more where I can be more of myself and not trying to repress myself so that I don't get stereotypes. I have to just, you know, I had to just realize that they're going to stereotype me no matter what I do or what I say. So I might as well just say it and be authentic and put it out there, but I can still do it, you know, in a well-crafted way. And I'm, I'm glad, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry you went through that. It's a, it's a, it's a shame that, that that still goes on today. Um, it was a lesson. It was a, a necessary learning experience for me though. Most definitely. Uh, yeah. Most definitely. I think that's a learning experience for everyone. Um, but I wanted to ask, you said that after that, you started critiquing yourself a lot of how you said mm -hmm. things, um, how you delivered it, all of the above. Do you think mm -hmm. that you were doing that? Yeah, to address your audience accordingly. But do you think over time it turned into you shifting and closing off that part of you as a black woman to not speak up because you were in fear that you might be cut off some way professionally? Yeah, there is always that, you know, because the people that, you know, um, that I interact with, you know, these are in some ways powerful people, the next leaders of our society, the next leaders of Minnesota, the next leaders of law firms, the legislators, you know, um, just at the start of their career with law school. And so absolutely, it's a small, you know, community and I will cross their paths again. So I have to be very careful of people's egos. But the unfortunate thing is that they never really have to be careful of mine. Mm. You know, people don't see me as a person um, who has power to do anything. They don't have to be nice to me because they don't see me as a person that will um, that they'll be interviewing before one day. That will be the one giving them a job that will be the governor one day. Right. Right. I'm just. Uh, yeah. Like it's so I had to realize that, too, that in my that growing up in my culture, we have to learn how to get along with people of other races and cultures, especially white people. We have to learn how to understand them how to make them happy so that we can get jobs, we can have careers and things like that, but they don't have to do that with us. They don't have to learn anything about us. They don't have to learn black history. Maybe they'll learn some quotes by Dr. King. Right. Maybe. Right. Right. And, th and they'll know that Rosa Parks said no. And that's about as far as they really have to go. Um, I don't know. And so I just, I want that to change. I mean, that's part of my video game company because it's one form of media because I kind of think that when it comes to media, besides like the news, like we don't have, it's not, we don't even have control over the news. We don't have control over the media that um, people of other races pay attention to. They don't really watch black films. Maybe they'll watch Tyler Perry and laugh. They don't really watch Spike Lee. You know, they don't watch BT. Um, but they play video games. Right. So that's one way of just connecting. Um, and then showing our stories in a way that they can walk through our shoes and see things from our perspective and just building a whole world around, you know, jewels. And they can enter my world and see my culture from my own eyes. Mm. And I think that's really that's really powerful. And that's just one way that we can take some power back and control over our narrative. And Jules, what, what's the what's the next step for you? What's your next adventure? Oh, man, you mean after this game? Yeah, after, <laughs> after the game. <laughs> well, one thing that I'm also working on um, is uh, an applied advanced STEAM course. So that's for local high school students. 
And what that does is it'll be a part of their school day, but the taxpayers won't have to pay for it. It'll be paid by Serif 7 Studios. Um, and the kids will learn art, animation, math, 3D modeling, um, a programming language, the Unreal Engine, architecture. They'll basically learn all these different disciplines that it takes to make a console video game. So these are video games for Nintendo, Xbox, and PlayStation. Wow, so cool. Yeah, and what this does is it takes students who grow up in families that make about $27,000 to $33,000 a year for a family of four, and it prepares them for entry-level job um, as a video game developer, and that's basically a $72,000 to $80,000 a year job. So mm. it completely transforms you know, their economic future, and that's really important to me. And so the curriculum, I actually have an iPhone Women campaign that will launch on the 20th of August. I have a team of retired administrators from local um, schools here in Minnesota that are helping me put it together and helping me form the partnerships with high schools and with community colleges around the area so kids can get high school credit, college credit, and love it. I love by participating it. in the program. And, and Jules, from yeah. everything that you've experienced in your life, from the ups to the downs to the middle ground, what do you think the most important thing is that you've learned so far? Most important thing, um, kind of just the, the fierce urgency of, of now, of people, you know, stop passing the buck. You know, it's like, if not you who, if not now, when? I mean, <laughs> I said that backwards, but I mean, I just feel like for so many, it's when you're combating things like racism and sexism and help trying to build empathy, it just seems like you're just banging your head against a brick wall yeah. and you're not accomplishing much, right? And I look back, yeah, I mean, but just not giving up on that and not saying, oh, my kids will be the ones to make this a better place or my grandkids will figure this out. Just being like, no, I need to figure this out. There's skills that I have that I can do um, and things that I can do to help just push the world forward towards equality. Um, and I think we all need to step up and do that thing. And if not, if not now, when? When are we going to do it? You know, so going back to Dr. Mm. King, it's the fierce urgency of now. You know, and the importance of keep moving the fierce, forward. Fierce urgency of now. I love that so much. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, I don't know if you know Gary Vaynerchuk, um, but uh, he's an entrepreneur. Mm -mm. Wine started off as a wine guy. Now he has his own agency. He's always preaching uh, macro, uh, uh, micro uh, patience, macro speed. So, oh, actually, no, I think I got that wrong. Okay. Macro patience, micro speed. And Pretty much what that means is live every day like it's your last. Work, well, not just work hard like it's your last, but whatever it is that you love to do, do it like it's the last day that you'll get to do it because tomorrow's not promised. Tomorrow's not promised. But also understand very that true. life is extremely long, but life is also very, very short. And that's where that micro speed, macro mm -hmm. patience comes in. And that's something that I've also implemented in my own life and has drastically changed my life over the past four or five years. So when you mentioned the urgency part, that was the first thing that came to my mind was, boom, yep, we're on the same page. I love it. I love it. Yeah, and I like that. Um, macro patience, macro oh, good, speed, that's good. great. I, I wrote it down. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to wrap up <laughs> here soon, but I have a few more questions that I need to ask, that I need to ask. Uh, this was a two-part <laughs> okay. one leading on from the, the previous one I just asked. It. What was the most important thing that you learned in your life? 
Okay. Oh man. Well, the most important thing I learned yeah. in my life, though, that that's a bit different. That would probably be. I love this quote by Plato, which is "Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard fight." I think one of the most important lessons I learned in my life was just to show a lot more kindness. I had to be a certain person when I was in the Marine Corps, and that person wasn't always kind in order to be a good Marine, um, in order to be a leader of Marines. So when I got out of the Marine Corps, I was so fortunate to have a, um, a female Vietnam veteran wow. as my boss. <laughs> and she really helped me um, transition to the civilian world or back to the civilian world. And it was really, I needed to learn how to just soften up and be a much more kind person. Um, in words and deed. So that was extremely important. And it still pays off to this day. I mean, being nice and being kind, it, it gets you so far. Even though we do have a person in the White House who is not nice and who is not kind, um, that that is not a sustainable standard um, for anyone. So, all right. But my life before law school was very different. I mean, I didn't have, mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't a full adult, I guess. I didn't have a lot of these adulting worries that I have now about, you know, what's the world going to be like for my nephew or, you know, I was basically, you know, I was having fun. I moved to Atlanta to be near a lot of my friends. Um, I was living my life. I'm a sorority girl, um, but it was a military sorority that okay. I joined okay. called Persian Angels. And I was just, you know, I was just relaxing. And that's why, you know, the death of my grandmother and Trayvon really shook me even harder. Um, it was that. I said, what am I really doing with all these skills and talents that I have? I'm a corporate security manager. Where do I see this going? Am, you know, am I going to own a security company? Will that be fulfilling for my life? And the answer was no. You know, so I had to make that transition. But I was really worry-free, you know, before. I love it. And, and what deaths. about afterwards? How do you how do you think it changes afterwards? <laughs> I was deeply reflective, deeply reflective afterwards. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and even now, because my godmother passed away uh, just recently on July 28th, and so both my grandmothers have passed, and now my godmother passed, and it just really leaves me thinking. You know, the elders, you know, the elders are are gone. You know, so now it's like my parents' generation are the new elders. You know, and I need to be a person who's out there doing things and accomplishing things and getting things done. I mean, even though I've accomplished some things in my life, I'm far behind the plan that I had for my life as a kid. I thought I would be in such a different place than I am now. And I know that millennials, right, we have the recession, we have to deal with this pandemic. Like we've had some pretty bad luck here as far as just life events going and our mm -hmm. economic um, standing. Um, but yeah, I just, it's just a big kick in the pants that. You know that there's and, there's still a lot to and do. Where, and where did you see there's yourself as a kid? Yeah, right now you said you're far like right from now where you saw yourself as a child. So where where was that place? So right now, I mean, I'm nearly forty years old. I know a lot of people don't yeah, know that. Like looking at me because I look pretty young. Um, I saw myself already having gone to outer space a few times. Uh, you know, living in a nice, uh, you know, not, not quite a mansion, but a pretty nice, you know, house, American dream by this time, a dog, maybe some kids, um, probably a professor right now. Being a professor is something that I still want to do. But, but yeah, I saw, I saw it very different than right. where I am now. I, I, I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> and before we go ahead and close here, 
where can our audience find you? Where can they find a game? Where can they follow your story? Oh, yeah. You can always go to uh, www.seraph7studios.com. And Seraph is spelled S-E-R-A-P-H. It's actually short for Seraphim um, in the <laughs> Bible. We could talk about that another day. Um, yeah, I think I, yeah, I, have, a, I have Twitter, at, which is at Seraph7studios. Um, Facebook and LinkedIn, you can find me with Seraph7studios. I don't have Instagram yet. Um, All right. And the, my last question. My last question of the day is, what's something that has surprised you in the last seven days? In the last seven days? Oh, man, I got a chance to go on a walk with one of my mentors. We walked through some trails um, right before the rain yes. came pouring down on Friday. And we were hearing this crazy noise right in the woods. And we were both like, well, we're not going over anywhere near that. But the way the trail went, we kind of had to to get back to the house. Oh, but wow. we realized it was the wind. And it sounded just like it was a horror movie. We were just like, man, is this a bear? Like, what is going on? We need to get out of here. And we're like, it's the wind. So just that. I mean, it's been a while since I've just been out in nature like that. And so that was just a really, it was, it was scary. But it was still good to be out in nature and get some fresh and air. And was this walk taken at night? That way. No, because remember, like, it, it, well, I don't know how it was in your neck of the woods, but it, it poured down about like just before okay. 7 30 p.m. on Friday. I guess oh, there was a wow. tornado warning or something like that. There was a yeah, tornado. So we, we got back like just in time. But as I was driving back home, um, yeah, there was like, well, you know, those like, uh, not the cones for construction, but those signs that they put up. They have their oh, like yep, middle, yep. like two middle bars. Mm -hmm, it's the sign mm -hmm. that's like, you know, road closed or whatever. Yeah, that road closed sign, it like fell right in front of my car. I had to send the brakes. Visibility was like zero. It was bad. Whoa. The drive home was bad. Yeah. Wow. That, that was a surprise for well, me. Well, the surprise for me here still in the store, initially when you said yeah. we're walking down the trail and it was dark, my first thing is I, don't, I ain't never heard of no black people that go <laughs> on dark trails at night. <laughs> So that's that Minnesota <laughs> in It was it was still daylight. No, it was I promise you, it was daylight, but that storm came so fast that okay, we had to rush I'll back. I'll give you a pass. I'll give you a pass. <laughs> well, Jules, thank you so much for hopping on this uh podcast with me. I know we've been playing phone tag for the last couple of months, but I'm I'm so grateful that we're able to get this hey. done today. Cause I would have never heard that story. Yeah, and thanks for having me. This was this was a lot of fun. So, yeah, I'm glad we were able Definitely. to connect. And I, and have I know this my audience is going to want to hear more of your stories and bring you back on to learn some more. So we'll, we'll get we'll get you back on here. soon. thanks, Jules. You have a All right. Sounds night. good. You take care, Martin. <laughs>